So here's a company that is appending a market that not too long ago used to buy the appliances. Like, oh, give me the, the 100 terabyte version. No, no, actually give me a 200 terabyte version. L- literally, you had to decide upfront how much storage you wanted for the next three years. And now you have a company saying all the benefits of that technology, data warehousing technology, and some with no apparent limits. This is Equivalent to Magic, a show about the tech wizards behind the most influential companies and platforms. I'm Steve Herod. And I'm Quentin Clark. Together, we're going deep with the technical executives, product developers, and engineers about how they dream, design, and build their way to scale. In this episode, Christian Kleinerman, Senior Vice President of Product at Snowflake. Snowflake is a pioneering data warehouse platform that helps companies make sense of massive amounts of information in the public cloud. It currently manages 250 petabytes of data. It runs 515 million daily workloads for customers across finance, healthcare, government, and all sorts of other industries. It raised a billion and a half dollars from investors, including Salesforce and Berkshire Hathaway. And Snowflake became one of the year's biggest tech stories. In the fall of 2020, it went public, becoming the biggest software IPO in history. The company's share price doubled on the first day of trading. Christian is the database expert behind Snowflake's product evolution and growth. We're going to talk with him about what the company is doing differently to organize, manage, and retrieve massive sets of data, and why, when he first heard about the startup, it sounded too good to be true. Christian was previously the director of product management at YouTube, where he oversaw all the data systems for YouTube. But before that, he led the data warehouse product and business at Microsoft. That's where I got to know him. And as it turns out, there's a straight line between his work in the database industry at Snowflake and his very first startup nearly three decades ago. Christian's from Colombia, and in the mid-90s, well before his time in Silicon Valley, he was in college in Bogota, trying to tackle a different data problem with a friend of his, scheduling. We began a startup that was doing scheduling software, and we're doing scheduling for airlines, like crew scheduling or people at the counter in the airport scheduling. All, all of those people are like working shifts and and. and it's not a regular uh, uh, shift. So, so scheduling is, is a very interesting problem. We also applied it to school classrooms and things like that. But the, the interesting thing that, that happened, what, what made it the, that experience of a, of a lifetime, was that as I was going to classes in, in the university and learning about things, I had the, the practical experience on how things worked. How did you get into this scheduling at airlines? It's sort of a non-trivial thing to start with. So my dad used to work for an airline and he used to tell me that the, the process by which they used to do a schedule was like five people full time working all month long for the schedule of the next month. And I actually, I remember I started with some Excel macros saying, hey, I think you can be slightly more efficient if you do this. And one thing led to another one and we ended up automating the entire process. Christian finished college and started looking for jobs outside of Columbia. He got in touch with his high school computer teacher, who is the one that suggested moving to America. And this gave him his first experience with the growing tech bubble. And he was the guy that said, oh, come to Florida, come do a startup. And we're doing uh, e-commerce, like an auction for the Latin American market. Hey, if eBay is doing so well in the U.S., we need a similar concept for, for Latin America. I can quickly tell you that culturally, people from Latin America do not like to buy used stuff. So that was a bad business idea uh, rooted on on, on cultural traits. This was in early 2000. 
The dot-com bubble was just starting to pop, and Christian could see that it was happening. So he looked for a company with staying power. And my thinking was, you know what, maybe instead of doing now two startups with questionable outcomes, I want to go and learn from the pros, from the big guys. At the time, I I couldn't think of a better place to know or learn about the software industry than, than Microsoft, and that's how I ended up there. And it gave him a window into how the big players were building hardware and software to manage vast volumes of data. Well, actually, you got into some really interesting projects there. And I know one of the high stakes ones wasn't just software. It was actually a, one of their first big forays into hardware. Um, maybe tell us about that project and, and some of the challenges that you faced as you jumped into it. Yeah, and, and, and Quentin will, will vividly remember aspects of, of, of those projects or that project. Uh, the context was Microsoft had, had a, an amazing database product, SQL Server, even to this day, broadly used uh, throughout enterprises. And the, the trend at the time was for uh, computing, especially data processing, to go broader than just a single server machine, which led to a number of clustered and parallel system uh, software innovation. But the reality was delivering and configuring and managing those clustered systems was frankly very complex. Customers had all sorts of problems and and, and just getting it to work was difficult, which is what industry-wide gave birth to to the trend around appliances, where vendors were selling both uh, hardware and and software as a unified solution. And this was challenging at Microsoft because Microsoft was very clear that they did not want to build hardware. Um, so we wanted to do an appliance, but it was an appliance by partnering with the likes of Hewlett Packard and, and, and Dell. And at least the, the, the biggest challenge, maybe in hindsight, was the realization that the software guys had become really good at software and the hardware guys had become really good at hardware and they did not understand each other's realities. Uh, we had so many problems trying to put together a holistic consolidated solution just the cycles were different. We wanted to go and think about, oh, we want to update the software and the appliance maybe three, four times a year. And the hardware people were talking like, oh, we're like in a two-year cycle. Things like that were, were, were very different. And, and then we, we had lots of like battle scars on dealing with networking and firmware and breaking changes on, on software, hardware interfaces and drivers. So uh, it, it was pushing Microsoft into something that it hadn't done before. Uh, that made it uh, quite exciting and challenging. It's interesting because at that at that time and in, in era, I mean, we talk about going to two systems, three systems, five systems, ten systems, and then later you found yourself at Google where there's tens of thousands of systems running in parallel. Uh, what do you think some of the lessons were that you learned back in that SQL Server era that that did actually carry forward? What did it instruct you architecturally? The, the, the big insight is uh, solutions work better if hardware and software are, are built to, to work better together, which uh, at this point is not a controversial uh, topic. And, and most companies are looking for some form of vertical integration or at least tight awareness of what they're running on. But at the time, remember, the, the, the big companies were hardware on one side and software on the other side. Google obviously had understood that very early on and, and, and taken a step further. It was not just uh, they controlled every part of the software stack, but also 
the hardware as well as the data center and and you could engineer for thermals and heating and things like that so uh yeah google still to this day is is uh, an amazing company in terms of understanding the the entire computing stack yeah and some of those learnings you know about building larger scale software and how to build a resiliency in the software in the appliance we also were able to translate into the early work in azure in those early azure days what were you what kind of like struck you as being very different about the cloud that then you saw even higher orders of magnitude play out at google and youtube yeah i think the the notion of resources on demand and elasticity of resources that was life-changing. If you contrast it with, with the, the sales motion of an appliance, uh, we used to have five or eight. I, I don't know what was the number, but it was a, a small number of appliances. So if you wanted to do a POC, you would sign up on some sheet. Months later, sometimes a year later, the appliance would get shipped to you. You had to make sure you had the enough power and space and configure it. And finally, you could run your POC. And three weeks later, like, no, I don't like it. Whereas the cloud was completely changing. Oh, you want one VM or you want 100 VMs? Here they are. Azure was doing it well. Google was at the forefront of, of this type of utility computing, which, given today's cloud reality, may, may not be a, a big surprise. But at the time, it was uh, very different. Yeah, and maybe you can just uh, share a little bit more. It was, I mean, it was certainly the scale, most scale you've seen in any of these data centers at the time. Do you remember any like super high stake challenges during your YouTube times? Were there some interesting outages or dangerous periods that you were entering? Um, I don't know if I'm going to go dangerous, but, but what I'll tell you is that I had just joined and, and, and at least YouTube was uh, finalizing a, 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 a multi-year plan and said, okay, this is where, where we need to be at the end of this period. And someone made the observation that if that were to be true, then YouTube would be consuming roughly twice the total bandwidth of the internet at the time. And people said, okay, then let's start building more networking capacity because we're going to need it. And, 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 and it's probably one of the most uh, uh, amazing stories about YouTube that it, it did set a goal that was three and a half years out. It did hit that goal. And it did end up consuming what was more than twice the total bandwidth of the internet at the time. From that perspective, the scale and the, the types of scale scalability problems and challenges that, that YouTube deals with are, are completely world-class. And, and yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an amazing property, not only what it does for, for the business, for the communications of the world, but from a technology perspective, it's, it's amazing that... It looks like cat videos all day long, but there's a lot of advanced and very sophisticated technology behind it. I remember a talk from my old boss, Diane Green, when she was there showing the, the boats laying fiber between Google data centers under the ocean. Like that's as ambitious and audacious, I think, as you can get there. So just, just fascinating. Yeah, yeah, Google streams uh, content via their, their own um, CDN, Google Global Cache, GGC. And the reach of that is, is, is quite stunning. I mean, Google famously has the audacity and the ambition, right, to, to take on things like that. Was it culturally a different place than where you had come from? Absolutely. A absolutely. And, and well, of course, you, you need to, to put in reference that Microsoft, at least when I joined, it was like an amazing place. It was the place to be 
over time it became large, slow, conservative, difficult. Um, and and I, I, I also want to acknowledge that, of course, he has had the, the most amazing corporate turnaround since. But at the time, the, the idea of getting anything done at Microsoft was very difficult. Whereas uh, I, I, I still remember that like on week two at, at, at YouTube, someone said, hey, maybe we could improve streaming in Vietnam if we did this. And I'm like, okay, I, I hadn't even thought about the streaming quality in Vietnam, but here's someone thinking about something completely crazy. I can tell you it involved satellites and, and crazy things. And it, it took like a maybe 20-minute review from management and said, yeah, go do it. And two, three years later, it was done. Uh, it, it's very impressive that entrepreneurial spirit and, and, and uh, willingness to like defy what's possible. That, that was refreshing. Yeah, Steve, just as an aside for your entertainment, part of the reason we did an acquisition to start the Parallel Data Warehousing project was because we knew we couldn't get it funded internally. It was easier to go spend a quarter of a billion dollars than it was to get a $40 million add-on to your budget. <laughs> I mean, utterly insane. <laughs> Well, this is interesting, Christian. How about we move on to the latest phase of your life and your move to Snowflake? Uh, just tell us, how did you hear about that job and about Data Lakes and, and what made you move over there? Uh, I heard about Snowflake early on when, when, when Bob Maglia, who was the former CEO of, of Snowflake, joined. Very shortly after he, he joined the company, he and I met. Uh, he's like, hey, you need to come to, to Snowflake. You have the, the perfect background. Uh, Bob and I talked about it. Uh, I said, not the right time. And at the time, when I spoke to, to Bob, he, he made all these claims that sounded like, mm, I'm not sure he knows what he's talking about, right? Here I was in, in YouTube dealing with many petabytes of data ingested like uh, daily or hourly. So some crazy numbers. And Bob was like, yeah, that's a little bit more than what we can do. It shouldn't be too hard. And, 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 and he said a, a number of things that, frankly sounded either too good to be true or decoupled from reality. It was the, okay, good luck. And then shortly after, Snowflake published its Sigma paper that described the architecture. And I was like, oh, wow, this thing is completely amazing. Now I can see why actually what Bob was saying was not only plausible, but very likely and made a lot of sense. And, and, and the biggest reaction that, that I had, I, I distinctly remember there, there were two, two reactions. One is, this is true innovation. And two, it's going to be really hard and difficult to compete with this because he has rethought the entire database management. So I, I heard that. I kept an eye on Snowflake. And uh, then the opportunity uh, arose. Actually, Quentin has been a, a big part of the journey and the conversations and uh, decisions for, for, for me to finally uh, join Snowflake. So here, we, here I am, but very early on, I could see that there was something amazing and, and, and magical about it. So early on in Snowflake, you started to learn about the product's architecture, maybe even a little bit before you got there. I understand it seemed almost too good to be true, just like you're saying, you know, like maybe there's a catch somewhere. What was it about the architecture that felt too good to be true. So, you know, beyond just the speeds and feeds, like what was the nature of it that felt like it was a, you know, a little bit beyond what was possible at the time? Yeah, the the, the simple, this was in Bob's original description and, and to date is, is still one of the most differentiated capabilities of Snowflake, which is the 
With Snowflake, you can have all your data in a single place, as much data as you want, and you can have one or more compute clusters, and all the compute clusters can be read-write, and they're consistent with each other. And that last piece that they're consistent with each other is like, uh, I don't know exactly what that means. So what about uh, data consistency? Oh, yeah. What about transactional consistency? Yeah. What about metadata consistency? Yeah. So here's a company that is appending a market that not too long ago used to buy the appliances. Like, oh, give me the, the 100 terabyte version. No, no, actually, give me a 200 terabyte version. Literally, you had to decide upfront how much storage you wanted for the next three years. And now you have a company saying all the benefits of that technology, data warehousing technology, and some with no apparent limits. That was the piece that was like, you cannot have multiple compute clusters and be consistent on the same data. It was like unthinkable. That's where Snowflake is. And and, and I'll say that's where, where the whole industry is now still five plus years uh, uh, later, trying to catch on to that type of technology. And, and you wrote kind of a cool blog post on this that we can uh, add to the link in the podcast. Um, I think it was called Hope is Not a Strategy for Deriving Value from a Data Lake. Um, and I know this kind of lays out the kind of, just as you said, the, the high hopes that people have for it, but also the challenges. You, you talked about the upside of not having to know storage ahead of time. Um, can you talk about some of the challenges that people hit or that you're working on in the product area? If you look at the, the state of prior art technology, and it includes what, what we built at Microsoft, but also what Oracle built, what Teradata built, what everyone had built, it, it was a fixed capacity system. And enterprises invariably hit either compute limits or storage limits, and then they had to go and buy more systems. And after you buy enough of the systems, now you have a whole collection of systems and, and, and go, go talk to... A, any company that has maybe 20, 30 years plus, and they'll tell you they have a little bit of everything in their data center and data is scattered all over and they have silos and they have redundant copies and and, and, and it's frankly messy. And that is probably challenge number one on the, what if organizations could have a single central copy of all the data that they can reason to and, and analyze it? So that was a, a, a big problem. And the data lakes try to solve that. So the, the, this is the advent of Hadoop and all those technologies, where it's like, oh, of course you can put all your data in a single place and it scales massively. It's all good. The, the analogy I like to use is uh, like the garage. So, oh, I, I have some, some device. I don't know if I'm going to need it now, but I'm going to put it in my garage in case I need it. And, and data lakes started to do that with, 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 with the exception there. The analogy breaks down that the data lake actually can store unlimited uh, number of things or a very large number of things. And now imagine if your garage could store things for as long as you wanted. Imagine 100 garages full of stuff. How are you going to make use of that? How are you going to know what's in there? If the situation were to arise that, oh, maybe it would have been useful, you, you don't even know where to start. And that's what happened with, with the data lakes. So, so the challenge is, how do you get your data in a single place, organized with fast query times, fast retrieval times, and, and, and governance, which is the, 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 the obviously top of mind for a lot of people, which is how, how do you know what data you have? How do you manage that data? Those are all the challenges that 
uh, frankly, up until Snowflake, were not solved by a single solution. So the the cloud providers that you the, you Snowflake is built on top of that public cloud infrastructure, the AWSs and, uh, and Azure and, and GCP. There are other companies that have built on their own infrastructure. And of course, those cloud providers are also not staying still. So how do you how do you think about the advantages that you get by building on this other at scale infrastructure? Yeah, I think the the cloud platforms have an amazing um, resource set of services. If if what you want is um, VMs at scale, if you want you want is storage at scale, if you want block storage at scale. From that perspective, what they've done is is truly empowering and 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 transformative for for the type of solutions you can build. The 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 piece where where Snowflake is very unique is that Snowflake was built from the ground up, thinking about the cloud. If you were to to inspect traditional database systems, they were all trying to conserve resources as much as possible. They were. They knew that memory was a, a commodity. So uh, the, the way algorithms work, the, the, the way optimization worked, it was always like resource constrained. And it was also planning for a fixed set of resources. And what Snowflake did, and, 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 and infinite amounts of credit to, to our founders, is what if you take every aspect of a database system and you say, how would you build this if you have a unlimited resources, and be ephemeral and elastic resources. And what, what comes out of the other side is very different from traditional database technology. Um, yeah, you may have the same component names. There's a query processor and there's a storage subsystem, and, but how it's done is completely different because the assumptions are different. So what you see pretty much every single database technology trying to do right now or for the last five plus years is how do you convert their existing architecture and their existing products into something that leverages the cloud. Because running it on a container or a VM on the cloud, that does not make it a cloud product. It is leveraging the paradigm and the capabilities of the cloud. That's what we did, or that's what what our founders did at at Snowflake. And of course, that was the original advantage. Since then, now we've applied that same logic to not just data warehousing, but data engineering and data science and a number of other workloads. So we continue to innovate. Cool. Well, um, one of the biggest challenges you run into at Snowflake is sort of this caginess about big companies sharing their critical data through the cloud. And that's in many ways has been all sorts of cloud computing uh, challenges. Can you just talk a little bit about what you're seeing these days, what kind of impediment that is, how people think about data privacy, and what else is going on around that traditional cloud challenge? Yes. Yeah, so, so I think part of it, um, the cloud is solving on its own. So I, I remember when, when we were doing executive briefings with Quentin 10 plus years ago, uh, occasionally you would find a CIO that would say, please do not mention the C word in this meeting. And it, it was like, I don't want to hear it. Yeah, as much as we, we, we all were pitching that's the future, I, I'm not interested. Obviously, things have changed in the last five years, in the last two years, where the conversation has shifted a lot more into when and how you go to the cloud more than if you go to the cloud. Uh, I understand that there's conversations on hybrid and some workloads that may remain on-prem, but the vast majority of organizations are in the, how do we get to the cloud? And and the, something that that is 
On top of who the, 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 the cloud trend is the topic of sensitive data. Many organizations, back to that, how they, they say, okay, I, I'm ready to do cloud, but I'm not going to do it with my most important data. That is the data that uh, often finds itself w- w- with Snowflake uh, for, for a number of reasons, but uh, we've received no end of scrutiny and, and, and I would say inspection from security teams uh, across industries, across organizations. We have many regulated financial healthcare type customers uh, or even the, the, the modern tech companies like, oh, I have a security team that is better than yours and we're going to tell you how your solution is not as good. And uh, the, the reality is early on, Snowflake was built with security and privacy in, in mind. And of course, as customers have pointed out, additional opportunities or ways for us to harden the system, we we do not spare a dime on investment on making the system more secure. So, so I think the, the answer, the, 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 the short version of the answer is half of the challenge has gone away just based on the uh, cloud trend, and the other half we just invest uh, to no end to make sure that that caginess becomes less of a concern. Your role in helping Snowflake scale from a startup to IPO was critical. Can you just paint us a little bit of scene of what it was like when you first got there and the kinds of things that you started to work through? When I joined, it was interesting. It was, especially coming from Microsoft and Google, it was like a tiny little company. Uh, We may have had maybe 300 plus uh, employees. There's lots of interesting uh, facts or anecdotes. Uh, There was, as an example, the IT person. Literally, if you you had a problem with with your computer or something like, what do you deal with? And and whereas Microsoft and Google have these massive infrastructures, at, at Snowflake, you would just go talk to Stefan. And if you ask Stefan and say, okay, this is what I need, and you sit down with him and you solve it and you're done. Um, so, so the immediacy, the, the sense of we're all working on this, there's no big corporate entity, that, that was fascinating. And, and of course, it, it's been amazing to see the transformation and the scale of Snowflake from what it was back then to we're still small in, 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 in relative to the large corporations, but obviously it's a very different profile for, for Snowflake. Yeah, and I know you've made thousands of decisions during that period of your career there. Um, are there any that you remember as just being particularly tough that you might take us back to and and uh, and kind of walk us through the scenario you were dealing with? I don't know if I, if I would be if I would point to to one decision. Probably the most interesting scaling challenge was around scaling all the functions at the same time. Uh, when you're growing sales, of course, the product's going to get more usage. And, and, and oftentimes we look at forecasting like, oh, we're going to be 10x in two years. And how do you plan for that? But also there's the support. If you're going to scale that much, how are you going to support those customers? And, and if you're going to support it then back to IT and corporate systems. So the, the most interesting experience is to see the, the importance of scaling all the different systems and functions of the company in lockstep. And, and of course, it's, it's hard to do it that way, but you, you can totally see um, the momentum is a function of uh, all the different disciplines uh, scaling and addressing those tough challenges. Well, Christian, so this has been great hearing about uh, your entire career. Thinking back now all the way to your Army time and, and some of those early days, are any of those lessons something that you've really seen applying all the way through this this uh, really interesting job at Snowflake? Yeah, I can think of two things. One is that, that lesson around resiliency and, and, and more than the physical uh, resiliency, the, the, the emotional one where 
yeah, and it has applied throughout my career, Microsoft, Google, Snowflake for sure, that even if you feel that there is a lot going on or maybe, maybe at some point you find yourself in, in what could be a situation that might lead to stress or you, you have pressure, you, you, you go back to that, that lesson that uh, you can just withstand so much and, 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 and have so much bandwidth. And, and that is useful to, to uh, you, you have a, a high pressure situation and you say, well, we just make a list of what we need to do, go do and start checking off the list. Um, that's what one one lesson learned. The, the other lesson is, is thinking through, I always wanted to know what was magical about Microsoft and why they had this like, okay, I'm going to learn from the pros. And the, 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 the big insight is talent makes a big difference. Uh, working with the best and brightest minds in, in, in the industry, that makes the entire difference. The process is not too different. The, some software is going to get written, some bugs are going to get introduced, and someone needs to find those bugs and fix those bugs. There is no real secret there. It's more about the, the caliber of, 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 of the team and talent that, that makes a big difference. That has been a, obviously a, a common thread. Christian, we call the show Equivalent to Magic to celebrate the magic of technology. Besides the magic of Snowflake's architecture, was there another specific moment when you can remember experiencing technology where it was like magic? Yeah, I'd like to maybe give a a mention to Snowflake's data sharing technology. And what data sharing did for for Snowflake or at Snowflake is what you see with pretty much all modern digital asset sharing experiences. So, so Quentin, if I want to send you a video or, or a picture, I don't send you like a, a whole copy of it. Usually I send you a pointer to it and you can retrieve it. If, or if I want to share my calendar with you, it's not that I send you a copy of every appointment in my calendar. You just get access and you see it. And what data sharing did for Snowflake, which again is powered by our architecture, is bring that same modern sharing experience for data and, and once you see it in action, it's beyond magical. It's the, are you telling me that I don't have to do an FTP and packaging CSV files and encrypt and decrypt? And are you telling me that I just can see the data as it changes on your side and literally it's magical? And what that has done is that, that informed or, or, or inspired us to pursue something much larger than what was the original Snowflake, something we've dubbed the, the data cloud. And for us, the data cloud is we see ourselves not just providing technology uh, comparing to maybe data lakes and data warehouses, et cetera, but we also realize that customers' insights are uh, informed by other data that they can consume from third parties, from partners, from suppliers, from customers. And this technology is what gives birth to what we call the data cloud, which is this interconnected set of organizations where, where data is at the center of it, where data is seamlessly shared across organizations, which leads to better insights, better decisions. And once you, you, you get to consume data through this technology, it's as close to magical as, as you can imagine. Well, Christian, it's been a real joy having you on the show with us. We appreciate your time. Great to be here. Good to go back uh, down memory lane. Equivalent to Magic is a podcast from General Catalyst, a venture firm investing in powerful, positive change that endures. To learn more about our investment approach and our portfolio, go to generalcatalyst.com. The show is produced in partnership with Postscript Audio. 
Stephen Lacey is our executive producer. Daniel Waldorf helped produce the show. Jamie Kaiser helped edit the show. And Sean Marquand composed the theme song and mixed the show. Rhonda Scott manages marketing and communications. Please give us a rating wherever you get your shows and spread the word on social media. Stay with us as we go deep on the technical stories behind the world's most influential companies. I'm Quentin Clark. And I'm Steve Harrod. This is Equivalent to Magic. <laughs>